Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, presented by Boston Women in Media and Entertainment. Sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you want to get someone's attention, just tell them a great story. If you want to inspire someone, share your success story. And that's what this series is all about. I believe that successful women think differently. And by the end of this episode, I hope you'll agree. Truth be told, I have known the woman you are about to meet for decades. But it was only when I was preparing to interview her for this program that I discovered I only knew a small part of this exceptional woman's life story. Her road toward success has not been straight. Like so many of us, she has overcome adversity and persevered to get to where she is today. She got her start as a broadcaster and then used her connections and her writing skills to start her own PR firm and later founded Food Truck Festivals of America, a traveling fiesta of food and beer reaching just about every corner of the United States. Most recently, she set her sights on finding a home for her father's legacy. Thousands of historic photographs and journalistic coverage from the 1920s through the 1950s. She's a mother, a grandmother, a teacher, a philanthropist, and a friend and mentor to many. Her name is Anne-Marie Agner, and this is her story. Anne-Marie, welcome to the show. I feel like I can't hold a job. (laughs) I'm like, really? Oh, it's so nice to see you and talk to you. Thank you. We just scratched the surface on your introduction. You have lived a rich and exciting life, and you are still going strong. We have so much to talk about. So let's go back to your experience as a broadcaster first. Where did you work, and what was that chapter of your life like? Actually, that's probably the single most relevant story to this broadcast because my dad basically changed my life at that point. So I was 21 years old. I graduated from college, went to Europe with two friends, said I'm not coming back because my family was very off the boat European, Hungarian for the most part. I said, oh, well, here I am in Europe. I'll stay and get to know my heritage a bit. Sent my girlfriends home, freaked out. There I am in Paris, freaked out. No language, no money. No clothes, no winter clothes, no nothing. My dad came through town. I was like ready to wait tables, but I didn't speak French. So, I mean, it was a tough challenge. What am I going to do? How am I going to do this? Did I make a big mistake? And my father said, he was traveling back from probably an exhibit of his work somewhere in Europe. Instead of starting at number 10 on your wish list, start with number one and work your way down as opposed to up. That day, I had seen the only logo, American logo in those days that I recognized, which was the CBSI. I went into that office the next day, knocked on the door, went in. Peter Kalisher, who was the bureau chief at the time, said, sorry, we don't have any jobs. I'm like, that's okay. I'll come back every day and you'll just step over me every day. That night, I got a call. And it just add a little color to this. So I had fallen asleep at whatever little place I had found a, a bed to stay in. I had one of those bonnet hair dryers. I fell asleep under the hair dryer. I, the phone rang next to my ear. I answered it, excited, hung up, took off the hair dryer. I had burned off the top uh, hair of my head, and that's how I started my job the next day so and he, my career. So here comes the bald lady into that's the right. newsroom. That's right. What did you love most about broadcast? The chase, the hunt. It wasn't being on the air, which I think everybody assumes is the most fun part. I found that to be the most stressful part. 
and the least rewarding because somebody's always judging you. And if you're making your point and you've only got 60 seconds and you've got this amazing story, it was the hunting of it. And it's basically that skill, I think, and that part of what I do now that I love the most. It's all about the story, right? It's about the, you know, you take a little something that you heard or read or whatever in the morning and you expand it. And I loved that part of it. I really did. I mean, you can you can certainly identify with that. Of course I can. So you're in Paris, but then you also worked in New York and also in Washington, D.C. Tell us a little bit more. I had to come home at some point. I really missed America a lot. I came home. I was there also when the Vietnam peace talks started. I had the advantage of meeting a lot of the New Yorkers, including Walter Cronkite and Morley Safer. And some the of the- peace talks took place in Paris, they right? They did. That was where we had to decide what shape the table should be, correct? correct? Okay. Correct. But I was there. So I was considered a local. It was very exciting. It really was exciting to see Walter Cronkite flirting with everybody from the other side of the, you know, the studio glass. And it was just a, a wonderful time. And when I came home, I had contacts. So I went in to see Art Kane, and who actually was in charge of live broadcasting, because while we were in Paris, it was the first time that any of the networks had broadcast live overseas. So it was exciting. I was the local little local girl, clearly American, uh, but I did speak French. And they, it was also during the um, riots in Paris, so I was useful. To them. When I came back, I worked in live television in New York. I met my eventual husband in New York. I moved to Washington. I thought I was going to go back to graduate school. Tried. Hated it. Didn't want somebody to tell me what was due and when it was due. I uh, wound up working at CBS in, in Washington as well. Uh, was married. And um, my husband, in those days, my husband left CBS, so I left with him. We went into local broadcasting Eventually, after I was divorced from from him, do I want to go back on the air? Do I want to go behind the scenes? And I figured, why not try my luck on the air, which I did in Providence. Loved it as well. In fact, a great story. The day that I interviewed at Providence WJAR was the day that um, in the middle of the interview with the news director, a plane went down at Logan Airport. And I was sitting there in the newsroom, just sitting there. So I start, picked up the phone and I started making phone calls. And he hired me on the spot. <laughs> I, know. I but, figured the worst that can happen is he's not going to hire me. But, you know, a, a career in broadcast because of the hours and so much of the thankless work that we do in broadcast for long periods of time uh, is hard when you become a single mom. I've read that you decided you were going to, quote unquote, give up chasing fires and ambulances and late night deadlines. And you started your own PR company. What I, a leap of faith. I had no choice. I was fired, eight and a half months pregnant with my second child, with a three and a half year old child at home. Well, I can't cut recut the piece for the 11 o'clock news because my children will be on the street. Plus, I didn't really have any income. I said, well, what I, I've been the recipient of news releases. Let me try. Let me give it a shot. I actually still have the Smith Corona I started my business with on my kitchen table in my home. Lucked out. I mean, if you keep going, if you don't stop when it gets bad, if you just keep going and figure out a way, if I can't go through it, I'll go around it or over it or under it or whatever. Eventually, things get better. If you give up when they get bad, obviously you never get to the better. You have to be pretty brave to be a small business owner or, or an entrepreneur, right? And the one piece of advice I give people when they ask me, and they don't always ask me, but when they do, 
don't stop. Don't give up. Along the way, you asked your friend Janet Prensky to join your firm, and the two of you are quite a pair. It is one thing to be friends. It is quite another to be business partners. What unique skills do you both bring to the table? Complementary skills. Most important thing. I mean, and honestly, I just got lucky. I get to work with my best friend every day. She is really my best friend. Everybody who knows us knows that. And we have complementary skills. She does PR. She does outreach. She's funny. She's nice. I am more of a pushy broad. I am sort of the creative, mad genius woman. Stick her in a small room and let her create. And then I give those creations to other people and they execute. And we're very, very lucky. We say it all the time, how lucky we are to work with each other, to have found each other. First of all, I should say for the first 10 years she worked for me or with me, she sat like this with her arms crossed against her chest, basically fighting me every single day. I would leave long memos about what neither of us knew what we were doing. And she would just sit there. Yeah. Okay, sure. All right, fine. And it turned out it evolved. It's true. It evolved. And we've been, as I say, we're very, very fortunate. And when I go off and do something like this, meaning Food Truck Festivals of America, I couldn't have done it without her because she does all the marketing. Your business has flourished and you have been named one of Boston's top PR specialists by women's business. What's the biggest lesson that you have learned about owning your own business, being an entrepreneur, and can you pass that along to someone listening right now? I go back to don't give up. Don't give up. No matter how bad it looks, no matter how hard it looks, when it gets tough, they say the tough get going. I don't really see it that I'm that tough. I know people would disagree with that. I think the reason that we're still around is we never gave up. And there were plenty of times we could barely pay the bills, plenty of times. But we didn't give up, and we kept going. And when she would get discouraged, I would keep her going. And when I would get discouraged, she would keep me going. I should also go back to my dad. My dad was an eternal optimist. He was a pain in the neck. If you think I'm a chip off of what? I'm definitely a chip off my dad's block. He was an eternal optimist. Everything was going to work out all the time. And when you can't do it this way, try it this way. He wasn't very good at representing himself, but he was terrific at guiding others and guiding, I think, guiding me. You have a screensaver on your computer that says, if we can put men on the moon, dot, 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 dot. Doing the impossible, making the impossible happen seems to be your Who mantra. Who told you that anyway? Oh, I, I do my research. <laughs> and Let by me the tell way, you something. I bet you one thing they didn't tell you is I also have a tattoo that says that. Ah, the question is where uh-huh, is the tattoo? Exactly where you would think it would be. <laughs> <laughs> so making the impossible happen, is that your mantra? What, what is your mantra anyway? One is if you can put men on the moon, and I would certainly use that most of the time. It's like when I'm on the phone fighting with somebody who doesn't want to give me, you know, a copy of my x-ray. All you have to do is press a button. Come on. It's just press. And then I'll go into my, but we can put men on the moon faster than, you know, three days or whatever. That and the other one is life is not a straight line. Mm-hmm. You know, it curves and ups and downs and yeah. around. And I know it sounds silly because it's hindsight now, but there were many times when I didn't know, could I buy baby food or diapers? Am I going to be able to pay the bill on the whatever? You know, I mean, I you've, do. you've been there yeah. and you've been through that struggle. And honest to God, start with your number one goal, which I just said to one of our interns, 
you know, she, well, I don't know what I really want to do. What is the first thing? Why well, I don't do X, Y, Z, but I don't think I can get that job. I'm like, let me tell you the advice my dad gave me. And I gave it to her. And I'm, I'm telling you, it, it started at the top. You might wind up at number three or number four, but you're not at number 10 on your list. And don't give up. You oversee and create events for your clients. What makes a great event, in your opinion? Good, Something good. that will get the attention of the press, be loved by the customers? Well, start. let's start with good weather. Most of our events are outdoor events. So I live in fear of the weather forecast from February through November. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, this weekend when we had a deluge, I'm sitting in Boston in downpours, and we had a big event on Cape Cod. I was afraid to call them. I was afraid to ask. They wouldn't let me come because they wanted me to take a day off. But it wasn't raining there. It turned out fine. So what makes a great event? I think we're on to something with food trucks and craft beer. You say that to just about anybody and people are like, wow, that's so cool. That's so great. A lot of hard work. It's great if you're just a guest and you go to the event and you can eat and drink. But I usually am working. I'm not eating or drinking. I'm blessed to have a, a sister agency that does really does a quarter million dollars worth of marketing for basically every festival we do. Don't tell Janet Prensky that I gave it that value because she'll probably say it was undervalued. Um, <laughs> but that, a good concept, a great team. It's a great idea, I think, that makes it, you know? It is a great, the, co the core of a great idea helps. The execution is the other 50%. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Almazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. Let's move on to what yeah. you've just talked a little bit about, which is the food truck craze. In 2011, you tapped into the popularity of food trucks. In 2015, you took yet another giant leap of faith and you went national with your idea founding the company you've referred to, which is Food Truck Festivals of America. Tell me all about it. We started as Food Truck Festivals of New England. Three years into it, I realized that I'm paying people, staff, 12 months a year, but only generating revenue six months of the year. You cannot produce a food truck festival in six feet of snow. Very difficult. We said, all right, let's chase the sun. So we went to Albuquerque. We went to Columbia, South Carolina. We're now in Florida. We are expanding elsewhere as well. The goal would be to have 10 months of festivals and two months off, December and January. We also have a division which keeps us actually additionally busy called Food Trucks to Go, which responds to corporate requests. It basically acts as a catering division using food trucks. We do other services for trucks. We like to be useful for the trucks and help them with bookings. We take a great deal of pride in the fact that we're not only starting a business and we're not only capitalizing on a craze, but we're also helping small businesses. Yeah. yeah. And we figure about at this point with between the trucks, many of whom have gone on to brick and mortar, a good day for a, a festival truck 
can be anywhere between five and fifteen thousand dollars. Wow! So if you multiply that times a few, and they're doing other events, we're not the only event produ- uh, festival producers. You can make a, a living doing. You can that. make a good living. Some trucks now follow us around the country. It's worth it to them. Who knows where this is going to go? If you had told me that I would be starting another business at this age, I would have laughed at you. But honestly, we did the first one and thousands of people showed up. I'm like, just stand in line for a hot dog. I'm like, really? All right. Let's <laughs> who, try it again. Who knew? Who knew? Here's an equation. Food trucks plus beer equals good times. You've taken your idea across the country. Does this equation work everywhere? Have you seen different cha- you know, changes based on culture of different parts of our country, different enthusiasm for it, or do we all just love this? I think we all love it. I don't know that I can make a living everywhere from producing festivals, but I think people love them. Boston, for example, saturated. We don't do festivals in Boston. We're based here, but we don't do them because why would somebody pay to get into a festival, which is how we cover our costs, is you pay for the gate, uh, $5 uh, in advance, which is not much, like less than going to a movie. Without that, we wouldn't be able to cover our costs, police costs, tent costs, rental costs, staff costs, etc. And without that, we'd be in trouble. So Boston, we go to secondary markets. We go to Worcester. We go to markets where people don't want to drive into the city and deal with parking. If there already are food truck festivals in a particular market, we don't go there. So we research ahead of time. I'm doing the 2019 schedule now. I like to go to Detroit. I think Detroit is an impressive market on what they've done. But I'm struggling. Can I find the right venue? Will the city support it in some way? Do I have a media partner that I can work with? We've been very, very blessed, and maybe because we come from broadcast, that we've had a major radio group for every festival. And promote. we work promotionally. We don't really spend any money on marketing at all. The Boston Marathon bombings in 2013 devastated all of us. And many people don't realize that it wasn't just Boston that experienced the violence of the Sarnayev brothers. It was your hometown in Watertown, where the big shootout took place and where Johar was found in the boat in someone's backyard. You helped found the Watertown Police Foundation. Tell me about it. What's your mission? I didn't found it, but I did help support it. And within 24 hours after the bombing and after they found him, they caught him, and we were allowed out of our homes, I went to the Watertown Police Department and asked if we could create a T-shirt that would be marketed, the funds of which would go to the foundation. And I heard that some of the people who were actually involved in the capture wanted to go to a Red Sox game. So we called the Red Sox folks, and they were amazing. They gave tickets to all the Watertown cops, of course, but they also recognized them. And I got the folks in the booth to hold up the T-shirt. We raised over $100,000 for the foundation. It was extremely rewarding. I'm now dealing with the Watertown police on another issue, and I'm very proud of the way they handled things. I'm very proud to be... a resident of Watertown, and it was just very serendipitous. It sounds to me like you just used your PR savvy and helped make something happen pretty quickly. Yeah. Good for you. You you understand that, don't you? Speaking of your hometown, let's talk about your late father, Lucian Agner, and his photographic collection. Tell me all about it. My dad was a photojournalist in Europe. He considered himself a journalist more than a photographer. When he started accepting assignments in Europe, he started in Budapest, but then he actually wound up in Paris. He would be covering a story, and his editors would send a photographer to take the pictures to go with the story. 
And he, number one, was a control freak, shocking, I'm sure, and wanted control over the photos. And number two, wanted the second income. So he started taking his own photos. Fast forward, he came to the States on assignments in 36, went back because my mother and my baby brother were there still, emigrated in 39, eventually wound up in the Berkshires. In Europe, was covering an FDR a story, and he was shooed away by the a Secret Service. And his mother, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, who used to travel with him, saw that and said, bring that young man over here. Young man, if you ever come to the States, look me up. Of course, my father said, where should I look you up? And he, of course, she said, at the White House. Fast forward, he did. Thank God. And when we were, <laughs> it's an amazing story. It, this is an amazing story because this, and, the, and what I just did in a month ago was a major family reunion and exhibit called the Re- Roots Reunion because had it not been for this story that I'm telling you, when he went to the, the White House and saw her and eventually immigrated and eventually reestablished contact with her, what I found as I was going through the settlement of his collection which we wound up settling at Yale, was the letter that Sarah Delano Roosevelt wrote to the State Department saying, please help this exceptional young man become a U.S. citizen, and please let's help him get his family. He will make an excellent U.S. citizen. Had that not happened, I wouldn't be here. They would have all been stuck in Europe, my whole family, and we would not have been born. So quite something. He then came to the States, eventually divorced my mom. He moved north. My mom moved south with the two girls. My, my father took the two boys. I stayed very close to my dad. I spent every summer in the Berkshires. Eventually, when my dad passed 20 years ago, um, he left us a huge body of work. And that's what I've been going through. It's exceptional, exceptional When you body. say he left us a huge body of work, I'm picturing, you know, drawers and drawers of of photographs or maybe a big trunk full of it? Like, how was it stored and what was it like to open it up and go through it? Amazing. Another amazing story. I have to tell you this because it's really quite something, the suitcase story. When my dad was leaving, he put the suitcase with 50,000 negatives in the porcelain bathtub, thinking if the building was bombed, it would protect it. It comes to the States. Eventually, after the war, is call, is is bringing his sister and his brother eventually over, late 40s, early 50s, and says, go back to the building and look and see if the suitcase, my, my, my aunt went back, no suitcase. Building had been bombed, no suitcase. All right, well, I lost 50,000 negatives in my body of work until now. My uncle eventually went back to the building a couple years later. The concierge had saved the suitcase says, oh, this old thing, handed my uncle the suitcase. My uncle brought it to the States. This is the 50s. My father never looked at it for 20 years. I must have passed that suitcase in the basement 50, 100 times. I have no idea because that's where I slept downstairs. He went to the Eastman House in the early 70s and the uh, George Eastman House in Rochester. Just, and they said, we'd like you to test this paper. And you got any negatives? He said, oh, yeah, all, all these old things and spent the rest of his life. Einstein's, uh, uh, Hitler's, Mussolini's, League of Nations photos, historical, historical photos, amazing photos. And that's why I did the exhibit. That's what I've spent the last 20 years doing. I really wanted to establish Lucian Eigner's legacy. He is one of the, considered one of the earliest paparazzi because he used a small Leica camera 
that fit in his pocket. He was only 5'2", anyway. But he put a little camera in his pocket. He'd walk into newsmaking events, newsworthy events, while everybody else was out with the tripods. And he'd just hold his hand up and take pictures and leave. He tells the story of great uh, Mussolini picture with Mussolini's hand on his nose that made the cover of Newsweek. And he said, I was so certain. And this is all in his own words because he was a journalist. So I had all this copy and I was so sure that his Secret Service had seen me and they were going to arrest me. So I hightailed it out of there. And we have all these amazing stories. So all the captions for all the photos in the exhibit that I just did were in my father's own words. So, And now all of these photographs live at, at Yale. Yale? The ones that were not the work that he only did locally in Great Barrington. How does this feel for you and your your siblings? <sighs> Sadly, my sister passed four years ago, so she didn't get to see the results of all our work. My brother actually just called me for the very first time yesterday to say, I just want to let you know what you did was amazing. But honestly, really and truly, I did it for my kids and for that generation because I thought it was really important that they understood that without Lucian Eigner, without that effort, without his leap of faith, without his cojones, Without him going, where should I call you? At the White House, all right, I'll call you. And then he did. Without all of that, we wouldn't be here. And I thought it was important for them to know that. And for your children and your grandchildren too, right? You have a grandbaby. Yes, I have a grandbaby, a new grandbaby. What do you wish you knew when you first got started on your career journey? Not to sweat the small stuff. Just not to freak out. In your 20s, everything is so important. In your 30s, it's still so important. You know, follow your passion. Don't give up. Figure out a way to get it done. I mean, you're cut from the same cloth. I'm looking right at you, and you've done the same thing. Somebody, I need to be interviewing you. Can we turn this around? (laughs) That's not how it's going to go. Hey, as a single mom, you made a big sacrifice of a career that you really, truly did love. For your children, are they proud of you? Not yet. Does it happen eventually? (laughs) I I promise that it does. Sometimes it takes a while. What would your father say? Good job, Nunny. Good job. He would. I adored my father. I thought he was the funniest, one of the most interesting people I've ever known. But he was a narcissist. I don't know. Maybe you need to be in order to do what he had done. And he wound up happy. He had a a challenging life. Life with my mom was not easy. It was not a pleasant divorce um, that split up the family. But he wound up happy. He remarried, blissfully happy. Didn't matter that I liked her or not. He adored her. She adored him. To go from what they were doing in the middle of the war, bombs and scared and troops marching towards them, and figure out a way to get us all here and to survive and then to bring others over and to make a life and to eventually be happy. I mean, I I wish I had the time to write it all down, you know, and I'm so grateful that he did a lot of it. And I hope someday I can share that more of the story. Success means different things to different people, and in particular at different times in our lives. Sitting where you sit right now, right now at this moment, What does success mean to you? I guess fulfillment. I'm still evolving. I mean, I'm not done. 
I just learned to knit. I'm so excited about that. I just knitted a whole blanket. <laughs> I'm so excited. Fulfillment, feeling fulfilled and getting further away from the times when I'm agonizing over something. Do you worry less, feel more? I am not a big worrier, thank God. I think that's the other reason that Janet Prensky and I have had a successful partnership, because she worries like crazy, and I don't worry at all. And maybe it is from my dad, I don't know. There's a deep-seated faith in my soul that says, if you think about it, you can find a way to work it out. And I believe that that's part of the reason that we're still around. I mean, 35 years with your best friend in a business, you won't find many people who can tell you that. It's not a bad way to spend your day, huh? Not a bad way to spend my day. I'm very blessed and very grateful. I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story today on the story behind her success. I can't thank you enough, really. Thanks for listening to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?